Amen. Do you need a minute to get rid of your cup, or are we, we're all set? Roll right into Mark? Or, no? Whatever you need to do, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Is that too loud for you guys? Probably when I yell really bad, it'll be... Anyway, we'll be fine, I think. I'll try to lean away from it if I... I don't know. We had a headset that was working well. This tends to be a little more... I don't know. Anyway, um, and the headset stopped working, so we're going to have to replace that. Mark chapter 4, I think we left off at verse 29. Is, is my recollection. Mark chapter 4. See, somebody wrote in this Bible. Looks like your handwriting. I'm the one with the microphone. I can do that. Yes. All right. Uh, Mark chapter 4. We'll pick up at verse 30. So, um... He's in the midst of teaching the parables and uh, talking about the sower and the harvest and the seed. And then he says in verse 30, Then he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. And listen, when you find the critics who say, no, there are actually several seeds that are smaller. Okay, Jesus was talking about that which is cultivate, cultivated by these people. Okay, it, it, it's, it's very specific in the original language. He, he's saying basically like, you know the smallest of the seeds you plant? <laughs> is basically what he's saying. You know, He's not saying, no, we've done a scientific survey of the entire earth. And we've discovered that the mustard seed is the smallest of all. But the critics jump right up and go, ah, yeah, you, you, you would want to dismiss, you know, creation and, you know, salvation and, you know, sin and death and hell and, you know, all those things based upon a mustard seed. Yeah, that sounds wise. So anyway, it's smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs shoots out large branches so the birds of the air may nest under its shade. We talked about the fact that John Mark, the author of Mark, and Peter collaborated on this work together many years later. So they're doing this recollection thing of, oh yeah, I remember him saying, oh, didn't he also say, and they compile their recollection of these events. Other gospel writers tell us different details about these things. It isn't that one's right and the other's wrong. It's that together, collectively, they make the entirety of the picture. Okay. So other gospels tell us Jesus said that it would grow up and fill the whole earth, right? So that even the birds of the air could make their homes, their nests in its branches. Now, when we were together last, we pointed out in this passage that Jesus says in regard to not only his teaching of the parables, but then his explanation of the parables. He says, if you don't understand this, then how are you going to understand the rest of the parables? From that, 
we come to understand that Jesus' ex explanation, right, exposition, ex expository is where we get all these terms from, it, his explanation is, is what we refer to now as expositional constancy. Once something is explained a certain way, it consistently stays that way until or unless more information is added or it's just changed outright. Okay, I'll give you two examples. We know from these passages we're reading right here, Jesus has already told us that the seed represents the word of God. So we can assume expositional constancy that the seed here means the word of God, right? The other side of the coin, yeast, right? Leaven is almost always described as sin or wickedness. But then Jesus lends us an occasion where he says that the kingdom is like leaven put into two lumps and it expands. So we get a more in-depth understanding of be it representing sin or good, right? Leaven represents that permeation, right? It goes through the whole thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? A little leaven would cause the entire church to grow. You get different things. So you have to just watch the explanations that are coming from the scripture, right? When it comes to evil, in regard to leaven, you go, okay, I get it. It permeates all. When it comes to the kingdom and the good that it is, right? Okay, I get it. It permeates all, right? So, so within this, two things stand out. One, the seed. Two, the birds. Because in the first parable of the sower, we're told that the birds represent the devil or devils plural, that come and steal away the seed. So here, exposition, expositional constancy, we should assume that birds represent that which is evil. In, in fact, demonic, the devils, or the devil himself. The seed planted, super small, Jesus Christ, one teacher, right, planted in the ground, resurrected in the body, right, the, the springing up of life, from seed planted, he even said that, right? Unless a seed is planted in the ground and dies, in regard to himself, the kingdom grows, fills the whole earth, so that the demonic can even make its home within the church. That's frightening. Now look around at Christianity and don't wonder anymore. When you see certain people and just go, that guy gives me the absolute willies. He's clearly doing bad things. He's clearly evil, you know, and, and yet declaring himself a minister. Yeah, it's not surprising. This is part of what Jesus is saying right here. That you're going to understand this parable based on other parables. This seed is planted. Yes, it supernaturally grows, fills the whole earth, right? But it also comes to house that which is of the devil. So, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples, meaning the crowds. 
when he spoke to the crowds, always parables, right? He's giving these biblical teachings. There's only a couple of occasions where he doesn't. And it's so interesting because that's where he speaks directly to the religious leaders and says, you know, you guys are really wicked. <laughs> You're hypocrites. You're sons of the devil. Right? He doesn't say it in, you know, couched terms. He just loads both barrels, empties both barrels, reloads. You know, he, I mean, woe unto the Pharisees. He just goes on at length about their sinfulness and their wickedness. But when he's speaking in general to the public, he does it in illustration. Verse 35. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat on the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Listen, very often that's our accusation against God. We run into difficulties and we accuse God of not noticing, not seeing, not being concerned, any number of things that are not true, right? James said, chapter 1, Consider it all joy whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith will develop perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything, right? When the trials hit, the first assumption needs to be, God recognizes there is something lacking in my life. And he has either done this thing to me directly, or allowed it into my life and into my environment, in order that I would learn and grow from the circumstance. So here's the deal, guys. It's much better to look at the situation and say, okay, what's lacking in my life? What do I need to learn in this setting? And immediately learn it and then apply it to yourself. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is either the trial will lift and then you're going to have to go through that test again later, right? Because the tests with God are always pass or fail. He, he never allows, he doesn't go, wow, 75%, that was pretty good. <laughs> he goes, fail. We're going to do that again. Sometimes he doesn't even lift the test, right? He just leaves it in place and says, you're going to grind on that until you have totally aced the exam. In the case of Paul, right, just deliver me from this malady. Take away this affliction. And it was when Paul realized that God was saying, no, no, not going to happen. My grace is continuously for the rest of your life going to be sufficient. That's when Paul got the 100. 
right? It wasn't, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, praise God. And then the problem went away. It was, oh, the thing that's going to fuel me through this challenge for the rest of my life is that God's grace is sufficient for this trial always. So that's not necessarily a joyful thing to hear. But James said, consider it all joy. You have to just look at it and go, well, from an earthly perspective, this absolutely stinks. But from a heavenly perspective, God believes that his grace is sufficient for me in these circumstances, so that's how I'm going to be able to endure. Crazy that that's ending up how it has to be in certain explanations. But here, right, as they're faced with this trial, the, the accusation immediately comes of, you don't care. You know, I wish we could say that we don't bark that back at God, but our sinful tendency is just that. And we're a lot like Job. We're more like uh, Job. We're, we're more like Jonah than we like to admit. You know, the gourd springs up and gives Jonah shade. And uh, I agree with some of the commentators who, you know, they speculate on Jonah's condition, right? He, he was being digested for three days. So probably his skin was really raw, right? I, I, okay, I mean, just imagine being in a, you know, very warm, very wet, very damp place for three days, okay? Whether there's any stomach acid involved in that or not, you're going to be a prune when you come out, right? Into the hot Middle Eastern sun. And, and we get the explanation that, you know, Jonah's head is balding. Could have been from, you know, the digestive process. And the sun's burning him. And he's so appreciative of the gourd that provides him with shade. But then the gourd dies. And he's mad about the sun. And what's really obnoxious is Jonah has taken a seat on the mountainside to watch the fire fall from heaven and dis destroy Nineveh. He wants to see these people smoke. He's waiting for it. And God rebukes him and says, you know, you are more concerned about the life of your shade gourd than you are the fact that there are more than 100,000 children in that city that can't tell their right hand from their left. That tells you that God is very compassionate about the innocent that die with the wicked. That doesn't, that doesn't come lightly for God. And yet we lose our creature comforts, right? I mean, God help us if the internet goes out. I, uh, I was with a fellow youth pastor years ago on, on a teen trip. And it was something similar to that. And the teens were losing their minds over the minor discomfort. And my fellow youth pastor said, yeah, you got real first world problems right there. You know? go, go to third world countries with him where when the women leave to work in the fields for the day, they put their infants inside a hammock 
a, a rope hammock and they stitch the hammock closed and tie it off on the other end and go work. Their, their infant is inside, stitched into the hammock. They're out in the field all day. What do you think DHHS would do with that here? Right? I'm not encouraging any stupid behavior. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying we suffer minor difficulties and we pitch a fit. You know, I, I say that people don't get it. You know, you see some little kid lose his mind, fall down on the floor, spin around in a circle, yelling his head off. I, I say, yeah, I feel like that a lot of the time because we're that childish. I, I wish we weren't. I wish we were really deep, philosophical, mature people, but we're not. Okay, I'm not. You are. I'm not. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. So here, you know, you do not care that we're perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm. The rebuke is separate from the statement, Peace, be still. It's the sort of thing of, Shut up. Be still. It's interesting the way he words that because it implies that he is actually speaking to an individual. The way it's phrased implies he's, he's addressing someone. That brings the speculation. The scholars who study it, the way it's, it's set up, say that it's quite possible that he's actually speaking to a demonic force that is creating the circumstance. He rebukes it. Sometimes our situations feel like that, don't they? I mean, wave after wave after, you've got to be kidding me. There's more? There's more to this problem? You know, just, you, you've just said it couldn't get any worse and it's much worse? You know, How could it possibly be? The Lord rebukes those situations. There is a profound sense of trust. Some of us, right, have taken certain steps in our faith because when we were much younger in the Lord, and the trials hit, oh, we did just act so infantile. And we experienced a few times the Lord rebuking those situations, and we, we went from screaming and pitching a fit like our head was on fire to dancing and singing praises because the answer had come so thoroughly and so abruptly. The important thing to learn from that is when we get older and more mature to not have the extreme of failure have the extreme of rejoicing right but when the trial hits try not to just completely fall apart throw in accusations at god you know acting like he's somehow the devil that he's created these terrible things i shared this morning uh, in regard to this uh, my pastor friend scott gallatin is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Finger Lakes in Farmington, New York, and he's been battling bladder cancer for quite some time. And it was, you know, it can't get any worse. Oh, no, wait, it can. Been through that a bit now. And uh, my last conversation with him was, you know, forgive me, Scott, but um, he uh, he'd had blood in his urine again and had, you know, just went through surgeries and all this, you know, chemo and craziness, and, you know, blood in the urine again. And they're going to have to go and do another surgery and biopsy. You know. And I sent him a message this morning. And uh, he responded with, um, the biopsies all came back benign. 
and he has no pain anymore for the first time since this all began, and there's no blood in his urine, and the doctor has given him a, a present, not, he's not in remission, but given him a present clean bill of health and doesn't even need to see him for three more months. So, I mean, rejoice in the Lord. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing that uh, the Lord has done. Our tendency here to fall apart. God is good. You know, I, Job making that statement, you know, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That, that is, that's a depth of maturity that can only come through, you know, successive trials. <laughs> you know, I, I can understand Job getting to the point where, you know what, if he kills me, it will be praiseworthy at this point. You know, kids all dead, prosperity all destroyed, home lost. Health destroyed. You know, wife is even turned on him. You know, why don't you just curse God and die? <laughs> Sitting in an ash heap, scraping the boils off from his body with a broken piece of pottery. Hey, if you kill me right now, I'll be so happy. You know, that was where he was at. It, it, you know, some people look at that attitude and say, that is wicked. <laughs> well, you know. When Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In certain situations, but we endure. We continue on. Why? It's a testimony for people to see us. Not running around in a circle like our head is on fire. We're in the trial, and we're saying with Job, well, if he kills me, he's still worthy of my praise. I, I might not feel like that emotionally, but I can do the reckoning, the calculation, and see, he is worthy of my praise. He's, he's good in all things. Rebukes it, peace be still, wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? They're not functioning according to faith. Right? They have seen enough miracles at this point that they should be able to some degree operate at least on the assumption of, you know what we need in this moment is Jesus. He's right there. Let's get him and apply him to this situation. Instead, they come with accusation. You're trying to kill us. That's what's going on. Rather than saying, Lord, help me in this situation. That's why he has to say, you know, you're of little faith or you're of no faith. Because they're not functioning according to faith at all. They're looking at the circumstances and reacting to them. Verse uh, 41. And they feared exceedingly, said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, being in the moment where God takes care of you when you least deserve it. That, that's very, very humbling, right? When we're in the midst, right, the, the blasphemous accusation against God is still echoing in the air, you know? You don't even care. You don't even care. And the answer is in your hands. That, that'll humble you. 
that'll humble you really fast when you realize, oh, man, am I a fool for saying such a thing about my king. And they were afraid. And even, you know, this miraculous element of God control. People, people do this all the time. You know, I commonly I talk with people that are struggling with uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. That's a big area of ministry the Lord uses us in. And, um, you know, they'll, I'll say, like, you need to go into residential discipleship program. You know, you don't dabble with alcohol. You, you don't party with friends occasionally. <laughs> you are messed up and addicted, and you need to get free of this. You need help getting free of this. And then it always comes back of my job. And my family and my situation. And it's just going to get destroyed. And I try to relate. Look, God will take care of those things. He will. And I, I am living proof of that. I, I have had to take those steps and trust God through the process. God has walked me through that process. It's so strange that the people in the setting will look at it and you know say things that are basically like God has no ability in this situation, right? I mean, if it was casting out a demon, you know, I can see how he would work in that. But this is a storm. This is a real storm. Are you, are you telling me that the demon-possessed person wasn't experiencing a spiritual storm every single moment of every single day? So God, God is sort of compartmentalized. He deals with this sort of thing, but he can't possibly deal with that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. Yeah, he does miracles within nature, but he can't really do anything about my marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does stuff with that, but he can't deal with this. This, this is the humbling they're getting is that even nature obeys him. You know, brings, you know, a halt, brings about the things that must take place. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadareans. Now, listen. It's called the region of Gadarea, the Gadarean people there because of the tribe of Gad. Okay. The origin of this, they're on the other side of the Jordan. They've crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and they're on the opposite side. Well, what's going on is uh, when Israel comes out of Egypt and they are about to cross the Jordan, it is, uh, um, uh, why can I think, the tribe of Gad, and what, what are the, the, it's two and a half tribes, Manasseh and... Um, half the tribe of, anyway, two and a half tribes. I'll think of it in a minute. Is it Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh? Two and a half tribes. They don't want to cross over to uh, the promised land. They're going to stay on the other side of the Jordan. God's very angry with them, and then this whole deal is struck of, okay, you can have this land as your inheritance, but it's in rebellion to me. You're supposed to cross the Jordan River. You're supposed to have victory and live over there, but you can have this land as long as you'll go over and fight every fight with your Israeli brethren 
in the promised land. Well, as a result, they don't have the natural barrier of the Jordan River. They don't have the natural barrier of the Sea of Galilee between them and their enemies. So when Syria comes down, because Israel is falling into sin, they're the first to go, the Gadareans. And they're taken away into captivity. And in their captivity, the Syrians worship pigs. And when they come back from their captivity, they bring pig farming with them. Because it's an unclean animal. So it's not part of the Jewish diet. And they've found ways to use it and sell it and give it to people, you know, sell it to people that aren't following the Jewish law and also sell it to the Gentiles. And, but they've become fully engaged in pig farming. That's what they're doing. And they've got all kinds of rules now of how you can farm pigs inside Israel and it's not forbidden. You just have to keep them in pens that are up off the ground because they're not actually in the land. And yeah, it's crazy, right? This is, this, is this not what we do with our sin and our compromise? We finagle all of these issues. But presently, they're crossing over to Gad, right? And if any of us know the story of the demon-possessed man we're about to encounter and the people that are there, they are the two and a half tribes that refuse to enter into God's promises. And that's a big contributing reason to why we see pigs and why we see demon-possessed men amongst them. Is because they haven't entered into God's promises. They're living outside of God's plan. So here they go to the Gadareans. And when he had come out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Out of the tombs. Right? Old Testament. The Lord says. Those that hate me. Love death. Demon possessed man. Living amongst the tombs. I'm always. Kind of. Intrigued. By people that have such. Profound. Fascination with the macabre. Death. Skulls. You know Tim Burton. Right, you know, and the like. What? What is up? Why? 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 Do you not know Jesus? Do you hate Jesus? Right. Those that hate me love death. This man's living amongst the tombs. Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Literal steel, iron, just broken apart with his bare hands. That, that would be frightening to just see someone do such a thing. I have witnessed people on uh, drugs do crazy things. I was at Job Corps, which was housed on the Hudson College campus years ago. And it turned out that the young man I witnessed do this was on PCP. But uh, we're standing in the hallway on the second floor of Job Corps, and we hear this horrendous scream at the end of the hallway. And we turn and look down the hallway, and here comes this guy, full sprint. He's got his jeans on, no shoes. No shirt, hockey stick in hand. 
and he's flying up the hallway, running at us. Everybody parts, just slams against the wall. He runs right past us and leaps into the air and goes right out the window. We're on the second floor. Runs the length of the hallway and literal hockey stick over his head just goes right out the window. Mike, my friend and I thought, well, that dude's wrecked. <laughs> and look out the window and he's running across the grass. We didn't get to see the collision with the ground, but boom, he has obviously sprung right up and right across the parking lot and attacks two security guards there with a hockey stick. Puts them both down and then flees on foot. Out of his ever-loving mind on drugs. You know, sorcery, right? Pharmakia, pharmakia, pharmaceutical pharmacist, sorcery. That's all one thing in the scripture. Uh, Demon-possessed man doing incredible feats of superhuman strength. You know, we learned later, no injury to him. Right out the second floor window. He did land on grass, but still. Remember the last time you dumped out a second-story window and we're just perfectly fine? No, you don't. <laughs> Full sprint. Just ran right out the window. Breaks chains. Demonic experience. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. Well, I think that there is something very demonic about cutting. And I have had to deal with a few very dear young women who have gone through that process. And you find out in each of the cases that I've dealt with that there was horrible, horrible abuse going on in the background. Torturing them, bringing to that place, cutting themselves. This man, the demonic, the demonic controls him and he is cutting himself and living Amongst the tombs, he's made death and dwelling amongst the dead his home. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Now, that isn't to say that he had the attitude of reverence. It is to say that he submitted to the authority that he recognized in Jesus. He did seemingly the way it's described bow down and submit himself but it's not that willful adoration that we do in worship you know it's you know submission right it's subjection it's not joyful heart here he cried out with a loud voice and said what have i to do with you jesus son of the most high god once again Jesus is God. The question, oh no, he's the son of God. No, he's God, right? Because, right, there's only one God. There can be only one God. But the issue comes down to this, right? What does a chicken give birth to? Chicken. Fish gives birth to fish. Dog gives birth to dog. Human being gives birth to human being. God begets what? God. Jesus. Jesus is God. He doesn't give birth. God doesn't bring forth, beget human being. He gives birth, brings forth, begets God. 
Right? Hebrews, we talked about when we just studied that last, he is the expressed image. He is the imprinted image of God. God imprinted himself upon physical creation, and Jesus is that expression. God in the flesh. So here, son of the most high God, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, Jesus isn't into torturing demons, you know, toying with them. We learn from the other Gospels that what this demon specifically says is do not punish me before my appointed time by throwing me into the abyss, hell. That's what he's saying. I don't want to experience the torture of hell. Please keep me from that. So he's begging to not be cast into hell. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, the number associated with Legion, we should not assume that this man has hundreds or thousands of demons on board. He just says many. You know. Well, keep in mind, we're also assuming that what a liar is presently telling us is true. Right? The devil is the father of lies. Right? And those who serve him are liars. It's their native tongue. So why would we assume that this demon is not just one? Right? Who's trying to make himself look bigger and badder than he actually is? The fear. Lies and fear are some of the biggest tactics of our enemy. Uh, it's, it's an unfortunate thing that Christianity listens to uh, the liars. Mike Warnke, I've mentioned a few different times, claimed uh, to be a satanic high priest. He's been around and spoken at a lot of churches, much less since the 90s when he was exposed as being a fraud. Right? He was never a satanic high priest, ever. Yeah. He's written books. He's told all kinds of stories. You know, talks about how in 1961 he had three foot long bleached white hair, three inch long blood red fingernails, you know, was the high priest of a satanic coven of 1,200 witches in Los Angeles and all that. All right. Well, in 1961, Mike Warnke actually had a white wall haircut, I'm not making it up, and horn rim glasses and was enrolled in business school. He was not a satanic high priest. Jesus People USA is a ministry in Chicago, and they were putting a conference together in 1992 on prophecy, and they had invited Mike Warnke to come and speak there. Well, what Mike didn't know is they vet everyone who comes and speaks at their conferences. They don't just let anybody take a pulpit. They know who you are before you get there. And they started looking into his background. Just to ask people, you know, is his ministry legit? Has he this? Has he that? And they actually found out that he was in the midst of his third separation from his third wife. At that moment, he was living with another woman that he was not married to, right? So committing adultery, destroying his marriage. He's in, and he's going to come speak at their conference. And so the very first thing they did was put the brakes on there and say, well, we need more information about what's going on in your life 
before we can allow this to happen. And boy, it just became a book before it was all done, an expose. The man was totally false. But here's the thing. For almost 20 years, he had been in Christianity preaching all kinds of things about Satan that the church just took hook, line, and sinker. Uh, attributing to Satan power that Satan doesn't have. And Mike Warnke's first book was called Satan Seller. Oh, so interesting that that's the title of your book. And you're selling Satan to Christianity. You're convincing Christianity of things about Satan that are not true. You go back and systematically go through each of the things that he says he was capable of doing with the powers of Satanism, and you compare it to what the scripture says, and all of that is lies. You want to be very careful about listening to anybody that, has a fascination with the demonic and just wants to expound and expound. Oh, this experience and that experience and that abuse and this cult and that thing. How about how about this, right? I've said this many, many times before. This church, if I've just been boring to you this evening, grab this one fact. The number one way that counterfeits are found is not by studying counterfeits. Right? We, we, we think, oh, i got to study the cult I got to study the the Satanism. I got to study the thing to know and understand these things. Okay, uh, tellers at banks find counterfeits more than anyone else does, and it isn't because they're trained. It isn't because of their little pen and all those things. It's feel. They're taught and trained. You know what the American dollars feel like. So if you're counting and something feels weird, stop, and put it under further examination. Okay, By handling the genuine constantly, they become accustomed to the genuine so that the counterfeit stands out to them. Put it under further testing, and you can confirm its counterfeit. The church should not have a great fascination with the enemies. Our fascination should be with our Lord and our Savior and his word. And we should have a great sense of what that is about. Yeah. Many of you have come to me and said, I was talking to somebody and they said such and such. Is that right? <laughs> you, you had the sense of something's not right. There was a feel about this, a spirit. When I when I came in contact with this spiritually, I just had the sense something was wrong. And we examine it closely together under the light of God's word. And up oh, here are the flaws. This is what's wrong with that. That's where it comes out of the ordinary. So here, this one says, "My name is Legion." You know. I don't know about you, I make this admission and sometimes it makes people very uncomfortable. When I first came to the Lord, um, I was a know-it-all, braggadocious, partying, lying criminal. Just ridiculous. <laughs> so obnoxious. Some things have changed. But anyway, you know. I had told certain lies so often that it just was natural. 
Somebody tell a certain story, I got one better than that. Boom, and I just launch on that. And early on, just within the first few months of my walking with the Lord, the Lord just slapped me right in the head one day and said, Wacko, are you aware you're lying? Are you paying attention to that? You, you want people to believe you about what you're telling them about me, Jesus, but you lie all the time. And I was like, oh my goodness. Like there is a catalog of dozens of you know, rehearsed stories I tell that are completely false or wildly exaggerated. <laughs> and I became determined right there. That is, I so want people to know Jesus and his truth. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I turned right around days later, and I had just done it. And the Lord said, so how are you going to handle that? And we had a long conversation where he showed me you're going to have to stop yourself and embarrass yourself midstream in order to break yourself of this. If you're in the midst of this and it and my Holy Spirit says it to you, you're going to have to put all the brakes on right there. And wow, wouldn't you know it? Just a few days later at work, in the break room, everybody's telling their wild stories about, you know, the glory days. And I jump right in and I'm midstream. And the Holy Spirit says, really? And I stop. And there are like 24 eyeballs looking at me. And I say, you know what, you guys? I've all shared my faith with you dozens of times. I'm a young Christian and I'm learning a new thing about not being a liar. And I got to tell you that what I'm telling you right now is not true. And I know I'm embarrassing myself ridiculously, but I also know that it's going to break me of this filthy, rotten habit that I have. So ignore what I just said. Carry on. And I just walked out of the room and went and just buried my face in beet red embarrassment. Over, over what I had done and what I had just done to myself. Co-workers came to me for weeks and months after that and said, that is the most sincere thing I've ever seen a Christian do in all my life. I've never seen anything like that. I said, yeah, me either. You know? <laughs> uh, but I had credibility with them from that point on that I hadn't had previously. Just because a demon says... You know, my name is Legion because we're many. And Christianity goes, whoa. Maybe not at all, right? I talked, I think it was last week, about how the scripture tells us that Jesus drove out demons, he says, by the finger of God. I always make the point that I did that raising my daughters where discipline and correction would finally come to a point where I would just say, you go right now. You know, that finger. Just go. And that's what Jesus does. He just shows up and says, hey, you, demon, get out. And they leave. It isn't that he, like, had such a powerful, colossal, hammer-like finger that he could just reach in and destroy legions of demons, which I suppose is possible. I think it's just, hey, liar, shut your mouth and get out. Why? Because the one who created you is here. So just... Shuffle along. We shouldn't take this and create something that isn't here. Right? 
What's your name? Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now, here's the thing, you guys. It's an interesting point that this situation creates. Jesus, you might want to write down Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, says specifically when a demon is cast out of a person. It goes through the desert, is what the King James Version says. It goes through the desert, and when it comes back to the person that it previously possessed, finding that house, that person, swept and put in order, but unoccupied, the demon goes and finds seven like unto itself, brings them back, and then all eight of them possess the person. Their end condition is worse than their beginning. Okay, Here's the original language doctrinal breakdown of that. Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, that the demon experiences some kind of quenching of a spiritual thirst that it has. Right? Jesus said, any who thirsts, Coming to me, I'll give him living water, right? There's a quenching in our lives that the lust is quenched, right? It's extinguished by the, the word, the living water of Jesus Christ. There is a fulfillment that it occurs. The demons get some kind of satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction that they can't have disembodied as they are without being in a human being. By possessing a human being, there's some kind of, even if that person isn't saved, right? We, we are created in the image of God. So, so they experience some kind of spiritual fulfillment in possessing a human being. When it says that they are cast out and they go into the desert, the original language literally says they enter a dry state of existence. They entered a desert-like state. This demon is saying, don't cast me out into that. Let me have something that I can have a certain level of satisfaction from. That's why, you know the story, he's about to request, let me go into the pigs. He thinks that somehow I'm going to go into the pigs and there'll be you know, at least that level of satisfaction. They'll be in some created thing and uh, have this experience. So here he says... You know, don't send me out into the country. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, near the cliffside, so that all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And once Jesus gave them permission, then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There was about 2,000. The herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drown in the sea. They ran off the cliff like lemmings. They all just, the, the, the violence of it is they run off and tumble and thrash and fall into the sea and they're destroyed in the process. Listen, the man's living amongst the tombs and cutting himself, right? The pigs show us what the man's actual desire was. <laughs> the pigs are like, look, if this is going to be our state of existence, death is better than this. 
The man is demonstrating that he has the same sensation from these circumstances. But he understands in his heart of hearts that there's an eternal judgment if he were to kill himself. And he doesn't want that, right? Pigs come from the earth and they return to the earth according to their creator. So why bother existing? I'm not trying to give us some strange explanation of suicide. What I'm saying to us is you catch in a little bit of a glimpse of the source of suicidal tendencies. It is demonic that there's a push that comes from the enemy to destroy ourselves that is demonic. Here, they go through that expression completely. They gave them permission, they drowned in the sea, verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him and had been uh, who had bending possess and about the swine and they began to plead with him to depart from their region that's such a strange reaction other gospels tell us that is actually the very first thing that the demons said to jesus upon encountering him is go away what are we to do with you we don't want you here you need to leave and then what is the community saying Right? They should be rejoicing, right? The boogeyman who lives you know, in the mountains and along the pathways and in the tombs who's constantly you know, hurting and freaking out. They've tried to put him in chains. There's a reason for that. That's been taken care of. And their reaction is, oh, you need to leave. That's so weird. Uh, but some of us have experienced that, haven't we? We were nightmarish people before we knew the Lord. And we came to know the Lord and our family and friends hate us more now that we've gotten our lives straightened out than when we were madmen. So weird. You liked me better when I was terrible than now that I've been healed. That's backwards. And yet, it's very often. I think what we're seeing, you guys, is what the overarching influence of this entire community is. Right? That which is demonic. Get pigs present, demoniacs present. The people that are present prefer pigs and demoniacs. And Jesus, you know, king of life, can you just please go away? We don't like you. So strange. So strange. They begged him, pleaded with him to depart from the region. When he got into the boat, he who had been possessed begged him that he might be with him. I want to go with you the other Gospels actually tell us I, uh, that he said, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And you departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. 
it's so interesting, you guys, that what we know of Jesus' ministry in Decapolis is a big region, right? Deca, ten cities make up the Decapolis. It's a very large, populous region for this time. Jesus had very little ministry amongst them. They were very rejected of him. They were either outright like this, please go away, or they were very ignoring of his work. Very little fruit until he comes back. When he comes back after this occasion, there is a massive response to Jesus' ministry. My suspicion is it's because of this man. Right? I want to go with you. I want to be your disciple. No, your job is to stay right here. I think there's a very important message in that, right? Because so very often we have that mentality like, I wish God would send me into the ministry. <laughs> very often what the Lord is saying is, you're in the ministry. <laughs> right? uh, Frank Drown's uh, trained Jim Elliott. Many of us know the story of the end of the spear and that whole occasion where Jim and his counterparts were murdered by headhunters in the jungle as they were trying to share the gospel with them. Frank Drowns trained those men. And uh, Frank, I, I think he's still alive. He's close to 100 or maybe over 100 now. And when I last heard him speak, he was leave, leaving our conference in Maryland and he was headed to the Inuits in the Arctic Circle to be their missionary and teach them and train missionaries that were going to stay there and minister to them. His whole life completely dedicated. He said, whenever you go into the mission field, there are two things you have to overcome. The language and the culture, right? You can nail the language perfectly, but if you don't assimilate into the culture, they're always going to reject you. There has to be a certain degree of you, you know, getting involved in culture, you know, embracing it, being involved in it. And from that, Frank makes the point of God has planted you someplace where you already know the language and the culture. You don't have to learn it. Go minister. Because you're going to be doing the same things in all of those environments that you would be doing in a foreign one. You're going to be getting to know people. You're going to be having meals with them. You're going to be getting jobs amongst them. You're going to be working and helping and building and do that where you are. You know, if the Lord opens a door and an opportunity, yeah, go do that too. But he's put you someplace where you are a minister. Well, I'm not a great Bible teacher. I don't know all this stuff. This guy didn't either. All he knew was I was a madman. <laughs> I met Jesus. And he made me sane. And I can share that with you now. That's all you're going to do. Whatever you were and how Jesus changed that. And you share with them what the Lord is presently doing in your life. When Jesus comes back around, massive response to Jesus. This man is prepping the work for the people to receive Jesus. What are they saying right now? Go away. Don't want you. Please, please leave. When they show up the next time, they're all opening their doors and accepting him and his ministry and the kingdom of God. They're repenting 
and becoming part of the kingdom. So take it to heart. However, the Lord is ministering to you. Be useful to him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, grateful for your work in our lives, and we pray that you would minister to us, Lord. We recognize ourselves in each of these scenarios. We pray that you would use us, that you would open opportunities for us to be used by you. We want to see your kingdom come to people. We want to see your will being done. We pray for the world around us, Lord. We pray for our president. Lord, that man is desperately in need of your Holy Spirit. We are desperately in need of your Holy Spirit in him. We need that to occur. This nation needs that to occur. I pray that you would send ministers to him. That people would be in his midst who could share as impossible as it is for these legions to be dealt with, it is just as impossible for the legions in Washington, D.C. to be dealt with. Yet you command them out and they are gone. So we raise these things up to you and ask that you would perform your will in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Amen.